Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Well, hey there, everybody. You know, I am so excited about this series and about this season. And what we're doing is we're talking about the meaning of Christmas based on who God is and what he has done for us. Now, last week, Pastor Jason introduced our series with this concept that God is light. That Christmas is about Jesus bringing light into a dark world. Now, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the fact that God is a reconciler. God is a reconciler. And rather than giving you like a textbook definition of the word reconciled or reconciliation, I thought I'd share a little story that I heard recently. You know, it kind of resonated with me. And I think if you're married, I just got this feeling you might be able to identify with this story yourself. So once upon a time, there was a husband. And he goes out to dinner with some friends. And at this dinner, his wife mentions casually that she has a meeting to go to on the upcoming Saturday night. Well, the husband, he didn't know about this. And so he thinks to himself, like, why didn't she bother to tell me about this before now? Now, truth is, she might have told him before. He may have forgotten. But that thought doesn't occur to him. And he had mentally made plans for that upcoming Saturday night. And so now he's a little disappointed she's not going to be around, right? In fact, he even feels a little rejected by her. And then some voice deep inside of him speaks up. Some immature, pouting voice says, you can show her. You can make her feel bad. And so he does in really subtle ways. Like he moves a tiny bit away, stiffens up just just a little bit, makes sure that no part of his body is touching any part of her body, right? You know, he looks at her a little less, looks at their friends a little more. I mean, he's just a little cold. I mean, not so much so that it would be obvious to the other people, but enough so that his wife will know. Well, then eventually he kind of realizes what's going on inside of himself. And another better voice speaks up and says, you know, you're not being your best self right now. And so he looks right at her and smiles and gives her arm a little squeeze. And then under the table where no one else can see, the wife's foot kind of moves over and nudges his foot and gives it a little rub. And he knows what that foot is saying. It's saying, you know, it's okay. Like we're connected, we're together. We can talk about this when we get home, but know that I love you and know that I'm glad to be married to you. And I'm sorry, I'm not gonna be with you on Saturday night. I mean, she has a pretty expressive foot, wouldn't you say? Now, that tiny little shift that tiny little repair in relationship. Like that moment, you've all experienced this, when thoughts turn from hostility to humility and emotions turn from irritation to affection and intention turns from like wanting to inflict pain to wanting contrition, wanting to reconnect. I think that's a spiritual force invented by God. And the word for it is reconciliation. That's a word picture of reconciliation. You know, in reconciliation, barriers to community get torn down. People who were divided and estranged to get reunited. 
hostility gets replaced with healing. Now, the Old Testament prophets said that when the Messiah came, he would bring peace and reconciliation. And not just to human beings, but to all of God's creatures. You know, the prophet Isaiah, in talking about the coming of the Messiah, he says this, The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. Like no violence, no pain. You know, when we imagine reconciliation happening in our world, like on a grand scale, we may think, you know, what would it be like for North Korea and South Korea to live together as one at peace? Or what would it be like for Israelis and Palestinians to live in harmony? Or in our own country, like what would it be like if the wounds of racism were healed? Or, or maybe we can imagine in a personal way a friend who's married and there's been estrangement for many, many years. And it runs so deep that at night when they're in bed, if he happens to touch his wife with his foot while she's sleeping, her body will physically, reflexively pull away. And he feels once more that pain of distance. Just imagine a marriage getting healed. I think visions of being reconciled, they capture our hearts because divisions hurt us so much. Like divisions in families, in marriages, in the workplace, kids in gangs, in our nation. And way too often, religious groups, spiritual communities, Christians, become one more divisive faction trying to overpower other groups. And that's why spiritually, personally, socially, the crying need of our world is to be reconciled. Now, we can't seem to do it, but it's at the heart of the Christmas story. You know, Paul wrote to a church in Corinth about God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them. That's what I want to talk about today. That God is a reconciler. And his greatest longing is to reconcile mankind to himself. Now, part of why we're doing this is because Christmas is a time when families get together, right? And I'm guessing pretty much all of us, we grew up in a somewhat dysfunctional family where somebody had issues. And if that describes you, you're not alone. I mean, let me just give you a quick summary of the families in the book of Genesis. All right, this is just the first book in the Bible. In the very first family, the older brother Cain killed his younger brother, Abel. Right, not a good start. <laughs> we don't get out of the gate very well. And then a couple of generations after that, there's this guy that comes along named Lamech. And he's a polygamist. He introduces polygamy to the world. He's also a murderer. Well, then Noah got drunk and his family's a train wreck. Abraham impregnated his wife's maid. Jacob deceived his father and stole his twin brother's inheritance. Jacob had 12 sons by two wives and their two maids. And he favored one of them, Joseph, so much that the other sons kidnapped Joseph, wanted to kill him. But then one of the brothers named Judah had him sell Joseph, their brother, into slavery and then cover his robe with goat's blood to make their dad think that Joseph was dead. Now, these are the families who made it into the Bible, okay? So sit up straight. 
Like your family is doing way better than you thought. And that's why we say around here in our church, everybody is welcome. Nobody is perfect and anything is possible. Because in the middle of all this dysfunction comes today's story. And I'm going to tell you at the outset here that this story is a Christmas story. You will not believe me, all right? You're going to think it's not a Christmas story because it's a really weird story. But you're going to be wrong, okay? It is a Christmas story. You just have to stick around through the weirdness until we get to the end. You ready? Here it is. I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version here. In Genesis, there's this man, Judah. And he leaves his brothers and goes down to a place called Adullam and marries a Canaanite girl. Now, to the ancient Israelite reader, this would immediately mean trouble. See, in that day, you don't leave your brother. So they would understand, okay, there's some kind of broken family going on here. And then marrying a Canaanite meant, if you were an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, that you were choosing idolatry and unfaithfulness. So Judah, he is going down a bad road from the very first sentence. Well, Judah and his wife, okay, we never learn her name, they have three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Well, the boys, they grow up, and we're told that eventually Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, he was wicked in the Lord's sight, and so the Lord put him to death. And in this story, the writer wants to be sure we catch where Ur is in the birth order. Twice, he says, Judah's firstborn. Judah's firstborn. Now, even in our day, firstborns are kind of disproportionately the achievers, the, the leaders. They're presidents and prime ministers. But in the ancient world, the firstborn would be the heir to everything. Like he would get all of the good stuff. I mean, that's why he's named Ur. Handsome Ur, smart Ur, strong Ur. Yeah, we all want to live in the land of Ur, right? I mean, it's true. But it turns out he's also wicked Ur. And so he's out of the story really fast. God takes him out. Now, you need to understand, in the ancient world, in Israel, but also in other nations, if a woman's husband died, her father-in-law was obligated to have her marry his next oldest son. I mean, they obviously didn't have any kind of national or social welfare system or safety net or anything. So everybody would have recognized that her father-in-law, Judah, is obligated to do this. Well, his second son is Onan. Now, this is a polygamous culture, so presumably Onan would have had other wives. And so if Onan had a kid by Tamar, that kid would get the firstborn inheritance, which would mean a financial loss for Onan and his little brood by other wives. And so Onan, he figures out a way to cheat Tamar and shame her in that culture with barrenness and actually get away with it. Okay, this is all in the Bible. Genesis 38.8 says this. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death also. Okay, remember, this is a Christmas story. Like, read it to the kids if they're in their 20s, right? 
Now, to the ancient reader, Tamar would be a tragic victim. I mean, they would all feel for her. She wanted a good thing, to bring offspring into the world. And in the ancient world where survival was dicey and the human population struggled, that was the best thing for a woman to do. And not only that, even though she's a Canaanite pagan idolatrous, she wants to be a part of the story of the people of God. The line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. She was devoting herself to be a mother of the people of God. And yet she had been given to not one, but two men of great wickedness. They both died, and she's still barren. Well, Judah, her father-in-law, his moral obligation to Tamar would be exceedingly clear to every reader in the ancient world. It would be to have her marry his third son, Shalah. And so he tells Tamar, tell you what, you go home to your dad. I'm going to raise little Shalah, and when he's old enough, I'll call you, and you can come marry him and have kids by him. But secretly, he says to himself, in her dreams, I'll give Shalah to her. I mean, I've already lost two of my sons. And so he never sends for her. He just leaves her to wither and die alone. Well, after some period of time, Judah's wife dies. And Judah, he doesn't spend very much time mourning. He's ready to date again pretty quickly. But he's not exactly an e-harmony kind of guy or Christian mingle kind of guy. He's kind of a Tinder guy. He swiped right. And that meant going down to a place called Timnah. Well, Tamar, she hears this. And to our surprise, this Canaanite woman goes into action. And here's what she does. <laughs> she disguises herself as a prostitute wears a veil so that she can't be recognized, and she waits by the side of the road. Well, Judah, he, he comes by and he propositions her, and he offers to pay her a young goat from his flock. So she says he'll have to you know, give her his seal, his cord, his staff, kind of like collateral, so that'll actually happen. It's be like getting maybe his credit card numbers in our day or the password to his bank account, something like that. Well, he says, all right, sure, why not? And then they have sex. And although he doesn't know it, she gets pregnant by the father of her two husbands, her first two husbands. And remember, this is a Christmas story. Like, just tell it to their kids when they get in their 60s, maybe. So Judah, think about this. He will now be both the father of Tamar's offspring and Tamar's father-in-law. And that means if you think it through, she will be the mother of these children and their sister-in-law. Like, how messed up is this? I mean, your family's doing great. This is in the Bible, folks. Judah, and he goes home and he, he tries to FedEx the goat down for payment, but nobody can find that prostitute by the side of the road. And so he says, you know what, forget it. I don't want word to get out that I slept with a prostitute, be a laughingstock in everybody's eyes. Just never mind. So he lets it go. Well, several months pass, and then word comes to Judah that this widowed daughter-in-law of his, Tamar, is wearing widow maternity clothes. She'd gotten herself pregnant. Of course, he has no idea, right, who the father is. But it's up to him as the father-in-law to figure out how to respond, like what to do with her. And in Genesis 38, 24, we read this. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Whew. 
Folks, even in the ancient world, that is remarkably brutal. So much so that in this very artfully told story in the Hebrew text, its brutality is expressed because it's just a two-word sentence. Bring, burn. Bring, burn. Well, they bring, but just when they're getting ready to light the match, she sends the seal and the cord and the staff to Judah with a message. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And then she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Ring any bells, Dad? Folks, this is an incredible story with just layer upon layer. I mean, remember Judah was the man who sold his brother Joseph into slavery and took Joseph's robe, that coat of many colors, and dipped it in the blood of a goat and brought it to their father Jacob and said to him, see if you recognize whose robe this is. And now precisely the same language is used to confront Judah that Judah used with his dad, Jacob. What goes around comes around, people. I mean, once more, there's a story with misleading clothes and deep deception and a goat used to cover things up. And precisely the same question. See if you recognize this. You know, recognize ends up being a big word in the story. Judah is, in a single sentence, forced to recognize his treachery, recognize his sin, recognize his brokenness, not only to his daughter-in-law, but decades earlier with his father Jacob and his brother Joseph. And the Bible says this, Judah recognized them, and no kidding, and said, she is more righteous than I. See, God begins to do a work in him. They call off the execution, Tamar lives, and she goes on to give birth to two children, to twins. And there's another interesting struggle with the firstborn where the secondborn ends up being the one through whom the line of the children of Abraham flows. And so Tamar, this rejected Canaanite girl, gets to be a mother of Israel. She gets to be a part of God's great plan in history. Well, the moral of the story is, if you're a woman and your first husband dies from wickedness, and you marry his brother and he refuses to impregnate you and he dies and your father-in-law won't let you marry the third son, just wait for your mother-in-law to die and pretend to be a prostitute and have your father-in-law's kids and it'll all work out in the end. Right? Merry Christmas, everyone. Like, What a weird story, isn't it? How in the world did this get in the Bible? You know, conventional religious people get a little squeamish reading this story in public. But we don't back down from the whole counsel of the word of God around here. And people wonder, couldn't Tamar have found a more wholesome way to deal with her problem? I mean, she could have sold Mary Kay or essential oils or maybe learned to do computer coding, something. Well, the ancient world was a pretty brutal place. But so is our world. If you don't believe me, read sometime about what has happened with the women and the young children in South Sudan. This world is a dark place. That was Jason's message last week. And these are not moral virtue stories or fables in the Bible. They live in the real world where there is great evil and people's actions are often ambiguous and the reader has to puzzle things out. And one of the points of this story is to show that God can undermine the evil done by people with power or by an oppressive patriarchal system. I mean, here's a woman 
who is marginalized because of her gender, ethnicity, and status as a childless and now twice widowed Gentile woman. I mean, she's the victim of sexual misconduct. But instead of being cowed into passive surrender, she shows remarkable courage, remarkable initiative, remarkable determination and creativity. And in the end, she triumphs over an oppressor and an unjust system that's completely stacked against her. And the reason for this is that the major character in this story, the one you want to pay attention to, is God. It's God. And God cares about little Tamar. And God is intent on creating a redemptive, reconciling community. Like he wants all kinds of people who everybody thinks will be left outside. He wants to reconcile people to himself and to one another. And he goes to work even on wicked old Judah. And Judah recognized this and said, she is more righteous than I. Folks, that's the beginning of a glimmer of a little humanity in him. Well, so Tamar gives birth to twins. And of course, we wonder, what happens to Tamar? Like, what happens to these twins? Oddly enough, the writer of Genesis doesn't tell us. She never appears again in the book of Genesis. But Tamar does show up again in the Bible about a thousand years later. In fact, the New Testament begins with these very words. This is the kickoff of the entire New Testament. You ready for this? This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. (laughs) Really, Matthew? (laughs) You're going to go there, really. You're going to bring up that story? I mean, you didn't mention any of the other mothers. You didn't say anything about Isaac's mom, Jacob's mom. This is very, very odd. You know, genealogies, they were a big deal in the ancient world. In our day, you know, they're kind of boring. We skip over them. But in that day, they were how people learned about their identity, how they learned about their culture. I mean, they would memorize genealogies. They would pass them down from one generation to the next. It meant we're a people. We're somebody. We have a tribe. We have a story. I mean, they were like the action movies of our day. They loved them. And Hebrew genealogies, get this, They did not include women, never. But this one does. And not just a woman, but a woman who tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her. And she's in the family tree of the Messiah? You gotta be kidding me. And not just that, she's a Canaanite woman. She's not one of us. She's not an Israelite, which means, wait for it, Jesus isn't just, from an Israelite perspective, a pure-blooded our guy. He's partly their guy. He's partly Canaanite. Are you kidding me? And Tamar, she's not the only woman mentioned in this genealogy. It's really strange. Matthew includes a woman named Rahab. It's not just a Gentile, but a prostitute. And another woman named Ruth, who was not an Israelite, she was a Moabite. I mean, he includes a woman named Bathsheba, the one King David inflicted himself on in an act of adultery. 
It's kind of like Matthew poured over the entire Old Testament story saying, who are the most disreputable characters I could stick into God's story? Like who will tick everyone off when they read this? Why would Matthew do that? It's because he wants the reader to know that with Jesus comes the good news that everybody is welcome. Nobody's perfect and anything is possible. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. God is not counting my sins against me. I love that. And he's not counting your sins against you either if you've put your faith in Jesus. See, Matthew is saying, you want to know what God is like? The answer is Jesus. Jesus comes and now outsiders aren't left outside anymore. And sinners and saints get all jumbled up. I mean, the grace of God means Judah and Tamar are together again in Matthew And their little children are the conduits through whom the love of God flows. Because God was, in Jesus, reconciling the world to himself. You know, there's a message in here for you, for me. It's about living in our world today. If God can reconcile Israelite and Canaanite, Judah and Tamar, saints and sinners, prostitutes and patriarchs, like who lies beyond the reconciling power of this Jesus? Nobody. Nobody. Because it turns out Tamar's story is a Christmas story because it's a part of Jesus' story. And the most unlikely people end up coming in to the family of God. I believe that's what the human race has loved so deeply about Jesus for 2,000 years. And can I just say to everyone listening to me right now, you have a heavenly father who loves you. And for some reason, God only knows he wants to be with you more than he wants anything else. He wants it so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, to be born in a manger and to die on a cross for you. And maybe you're listening right now, you're not sure where you are in your relationship with God. You're not sure if you were to die today, if you'd be forgiven, given the gift of eternal life. If you would like to be sure, I'm going to give you an opportunity to put your faith in Jesus, in our prayer, in just a moment. But maybe you're listening right now and you are a Christian. And if you're honest today, kind of like Judah, there's some stuff in your relationship with your Heavenly Father that needs to get fixed. It needs to be worked out. You know, maybe there's some behavior you're not proud of. Well, if that's the case, the Bible has a path for you as well. Confess it, get a clean slate, and then renew your fellowship with Jesus by following his word. Finally, if there are people in your life who are far away from God, for some reason, I got to tell you, this time of year, they often open up to God and spiritual things. And maybe, just maybe, you can help them take a next step in their spiritual journey. Maybe you can invite the uninvited to be a part of our church family, to be a part of our story. You know, our world is one great story, one weird, amazing story. And it includes the most unlikely people. I mean, it ends up with somebody like Tamar right there next to the Christ child in the manger right there listening 
to the angels. Hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. God and sinners reconciled. That's the story, people. The Merry Christmas story. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for being a God who loves everyone. For being an all-inclusive God that all the way back to the very first book of the Bible in Genesis, it was about you reconciling the world to yourself, including and accepting all people. God, I pray that we would be a people that would welcome everybody, recognize that no one's perfect, but with you, anything is possible. And if you're listening to me right now and you'd like to have a relationship with Jesus, you'd like to be forgiven, you'd like to know that you have the gift of eternal life, that you will be in heaven with Jesus one day. There's nothing you have to do. It's simply putting your faith in him. It's believing that Jesus loves you, that he came to this world and he was born in a manger, but he died on a cross to pay for your sins. And right now in the quietness of your heart, you can simply say, Jesus, I'm no longer trusting in anything or anyone else. I'm putting my faith in you. And I'm thanking you for your forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. And God, for those of us who need to get something straight in our lives, I pray that we would just confess whatever it is that's standing in the way of a pure relationship with you and get back on that righteous path. And God, that we would recognize that we are the messengers of reconciliation, that we can reach out to people who are outsiders, who are marginalized, and invite them in. And I pray that this Christmas season would be a time when we would be aware of the people around us and reach out to them with the love of Jesus, just like you've reached out to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.